Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And now, are you effing kidding me with JoJo from Jury's? I have a question for MAGA. You say you want Trump back in office. You say you liked his policies, that things were better, that he fought for you. And I want to know why you think that. Because he told you he would lower the cost of your prescription drugs and didn't. But Biden did. He said he'd bring back manufacturing, but he didn't. Joe Biden passed the CHIPS Act, allocating tens of billions in incentives for companies to construct and expand manufacturing facilities here in the US. For four years straight, he said every week would be infrastructure week. Only that week never came. President Biden signed a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill into law during his first year in office. Trump said he would boost economic growth by 4% a year. Nope, the economy stalled and unemployment soared to the highest levels since the Great Depression. Joe Biden has created 13.2 million jobs and unemployment has been under 4% for 17 months in a row, the longest stretch in over 50 years. Trump promised to eliminate the federal deficit. He increased it by more than 60%. Joe Biden cut the deficit by more than $1.7 in his first two years, the largest deficit reduction in American history. He said he would hire only the best people. He's since called his AG a gutless pig, his national security advisor, one of the dumbest people in Washington, his secretary of defense, the world's most overrated general. And he said that people were right to want to hang his vice president. Joe Biden has seen very little turnover in his cabinet and hasn't so much as criticized anyone in his administration let alone wanted to see them hanged. Trump promised he'd build a wall and that Mexico would pay for it. He then took $15 billion from our Defense Department's budget to pay for less than 500 miles of construction. Joe Biden got Mexico to pay us $1.5 billion for border security. Trump promised to lock up Hillary Clinton for using a private email server. He's now been federally indicted with 37 charges related to his intentional mishandling of national security documents. Joe Biden hasn't. He said he would unify America and then told his supporters to attack our capital. He was impeached twice, lost re-election, and has to date been indicted 71 times. More charges likely to come. Oh, and that money you're sending him for the 2024 election? Yeah, that's being used to pay his personal legal bills. So given all of this, my question remains the same. What was better under Trump? What policies? If it wasn't healthcare, infrastructure, border security, American manufacturing, or the economy, what was it? And if he's fighting for you, why is he using your campaign donations on his personal legal woes? I would really love to know. And while you're here, you should know that Donald Trump isn't doing anything but putting Donald Trump first. It's Donald Trump first, America last. This has always been the case. He hasn't been indicted one single time for you. He didn't pay porn star hush money to fight for you. He did it for Trump. He didn't steal classified national security documents, lie about them, conceal them from the government, keep them in his effing bathroom, and show them to every Tom, Dick, and Sally, the slutty Saudi spy for you. 
He did it for Trump. He didn't plot a coup and incite a deadly attack on our capital for you. He did it for Trump. He downplayed COVID for Trump. He coordinated with Putin for Trump. He attacked nearly every single person who had ever served in his administration but refused to help him overthrow the government for Trump. He ran for then and is running for now, an office he once refused to leave after the election he lost for Trump. Not for me, not for you, and not for any of his loyal disciples who send them their insulin money every single month. All of it, every criminal thing, every corrupt action, every single betrayal of the oath he supposedly swore to uphold was for him. No matter who it hurt, no matter how many of our citizens or troops he imperiled, none of it mattered because it was for Trump. Trump first, America last. And he's finally finding out that when you're a former president, they don't just let you do it. You can't just do anything. When you're a lifelong criminal con man, no longer shielded by an office you tried to steal, they finally hold your traitorous you-know-what accountable. The truth is that he's never done a damn thing for us. But the consequences for what he did to us are 100% about him, not you. Today's special Saturday edition features my interview with Miles Taylor. Miles is a former Homeland Security official who served during the Trump administration and penned Anonymous, the op-ed that we all know about. He saw with his own eyes the irrational erraticism, the unhinged narcissism, the lack of constraint, and the desire to serve himself only that was Donald Trump. And he knew he had a duty to alert the public. In his new book, Blowback, Miles talks about the dangers of a second Trump term and how it would upend democracy. This book is a warning when we should all heed. We talk about that. We talk about some of the more disturbing Trump compulsions. It may or may not rhyme with my manka and much, much more. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Miles Taylor, former Department of Homeland Security Chief of Staff and author of the new book, Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Hi, Miles. Yo, it's awesome to be with you. It's so awesome to meet you, but face screen to screen. I feel like uh, we've been sort of out there in the social media world, sort of around each other, but meeting you for the first time is absolutely incredible. Well, and I'm just going to pull the, the mask off the whole thing. What the listeners missed was <laughs> an awesome 30-minute conversation we had before this. And yeah. I'm now thinking... Shit, that should have been the podcast. <laughs> we, have, we just forgot to hit record. So yeah. you guys missed me getting to know Joe uh, and and it blew my mind. So more to come on that front. But I, I really feel like I should be interviewing you right now. <laughs> so that's what I prefer to be doing. So we'll see if we can keep some balance, but I may be throwing questions at you. Yeah. Well, that was an awesome conversation. And it was, it was, it was really good to see again, like a more personal side of you because all, you know, really all I know is the side that I see on social media or the side I see in interviews or, you know, et cetera, but getting to know you a little bit person to person is, is really amazing. So I'm glad we had that conversation. Right back at you, lady. And now everyone's yeah. thinking, what did they talk about? You'll find out. <laughs> You'll on after know. hours with Miles and Jeff. <laughs> That's right. If you if you join my OnlyFans, payrolls, <laughs> you'll get access to that secret interview and so much more. We'll Exclusive be bearing we'll be bearing it all. Yeah, because the trolls they say I have an OnlyFans, which is awesome, except I don't. But maybe they do. I hear they're so, big money makers. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's start. So in 2018. You wrote an anonymous op-ed in New York Times 
I read it. Um, everyone read it, really, uh, about from the inside the Trump administration. I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. You revealed publicly what Trump's cabinet was saying privately, that the president was dangerously unfit for office. And since then, you've amassed yourself and have been urging Americans to vote against Trump since 2020. You've also launched the largest alliance of ex-officials in the United States to take down the president who appointed you guys, which is amazing. So obviously, all of this points to just how truly unfit and dangerous he really is, which brings me to my question. What was it that finally compelled you before the anonymous op-ed? Was it one event? Was it a culmination of events? Was there something where you were like, that's it? I need to speak up. I'm going to do this anonymously for now, but like red line. Yeah, a lot of red lines. Um, so I'm glad you start there, Joe. I mean, let me let me call out the elephant in the room. The decision to write an opinion piece anonymously was very, very controversial. And people who judge that decision harshly have a very reasonable position. You know, I think the question I get most often is, well, why didn't you just do it in your own name at that moment? And it's a very fair question because it's something that I wrestled with myself. Um, you know, the very quick background on this is I never wanted to be in politics. In fact, I hate politics. I really, really don't like being in. And by that, I mean political campaigns, the Republican and Democrat of it all you know, a political conflict. I went into government because of public policy. I wanted to work in national security policy and started my career in the wake of 9-11. And like a lot of other millennials, it's why I wanted to go into government. I was deeply, deeply impacted by 9-11 and, and didn't live in New York. I was living in small farm town, Indiana, but was really emotionally impacted by it. And, you know, at the risk of oversharing, in the months after 9-11 was diagnosed with PTSD, with post-traumatic stress disorder. So here I am, a young guy, basically a young teenager, no connection to the tragedy, but I was so obsessed with what had happened and watching it, and I was just consumed by it. I couldn't even focus on school or anything um, that I ended up having these, at the time, inexplic inexplicable neurological symptoms and other things. And the doctors said, you know, you've got PTSD. That's how impacted I was by 9-11. So that put me on a trajectory of wanting to be in the national security community, prevent any day like that from happening again. So fast forward, you know, when Trump comes onto the scene, as you and I had been talking about earlier, when he does that golden escalator ride, I really wasn't even paying attention. In fact, when he was doing that golden escalator ride, I was over in the Middle East on the border with Syria, tracking terrorist foreign fighters who were trying to infiltrate Europe to conduct terrorist attacks. So I was working on counterterrorism. I was in Capitol Hill at the time. Previously, I'd been in the Bush administration. That's where my focus was, was on national security. And there was no way a clown like Donald Trump was going to win the presidency. As he started to gain traction, I got involved in these efforts within my party at the time, the Republican Party, to stop Trump uh, and was working under Paul Ryan when he was Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan put together something he called the Trump inoculation plan to stop Donald Trump. Clearly, we failed miserably at the <laughs> Trump inoculation plan, right? He wins. I thought, no way in hell I'm going to go into that administration. But I changed my mind because 
people that I really respected and admired, like John Kelly, who at the time had been the head of U.S. Southern Command, four-star Marine General, Jim Mattis, Rex Tillerson, these pretty credible names were going into the administration, and there was an opportunity to go help out one of them, John Kelly. And I was, right or wrong, very persuaded by this notion of an axis of adults that could keep Trump in check, preserve these institutions, and we would get through this period because he was an anomaly. So fast forward a year and a half from that, from going in, um, I started to take on a really different perspective because as we spent time with Trump in the Oval Office and on Air Force One and elsewhere, it was very evident to me that this so-called axis of adults was really struggling to keep the guy in check. And bluntly put, it was really fucking terrifying. I mean, the, the man couldn't focus in meetings, was wildly impulsive. All the things that we saw in public, I mean, that was no secret. The secret, though, the thing that was really frustrating to me is all of those folks in the cabinet saw it, agreed that it was terrifying. But even more so than that, there were quiet conversations about the possibility that we might have to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove him from office. What I was frustrated about was Trump's cabinet wasn't talking about that publicly. And I felt like, look, if this is so bad that the president of the United States immediate team thinks he might not be stable enough to run the country, then the American people should know that. Now, the decision to sound that alarm anonymously was because I still felt like I should stay in and try to keep the wheels on the wagon with those folks. I was still a believer that we could contain some of the bad decisions. But the straw that broke the camel's back to go write that piece was in 2018, a series of catastrophic decisions like family separation at the border, which was something that never, ever should have happened. And then as pedestrian as it may sound, there should have been a lot of other straws that really broke the camel's back. But for me, it was sitting there one night in a hotel room in Australia. I was on the other side of the world meeting with our intelligence partners in Australia and the UK and elsewhere talking about threats. And I got a phone call that morning from the White House that Trump wanted the flags raised back up. You may ask oh. the flags for what? Well, John McCain my mentor and hero from Capitol Hill. When I came to Washington as a, as a baby, basically, McCain was an inspiration and he had just died. And so of course, across the country, the flags were at half staff to honor him. And I get a phone call and little known fact, DHS is responsible for telling federal buildings to lower their flags. And so we were the ones that had said, lower your flags in honor of the recently deceased John McCain. I get a phone call from the White House Trump wants you to raise the flags back up. And at that point, I was the deputy chief of staff of the department. And my response was effectively, fuck that. I will resign from my job. Um, and John Kelly managed to convince the president not to go forward with that order. But in that moment, and not to give you too much detail, Joe, I popped up in my boxers and T-shirt from my bed in a hotel room in Australia. And I just started writing. I started writing all of these things that I just said to you. And it started off kind of as a diary entry. But by the end of it, and it was probably because I hadn't had a lot of sleep. I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to say this somehow. And I reached out to a contact and I flipped them my notes without a second thought. And I said, uh, would the New York Times be willing to publish this? Uh, and then they did. Um, and a lot of unexpected things happened after that. But I felt like I needed to get that 
message out there. So more than you bargained for, for no. answer to the first question, no, no, no. but that's kind of what drove me to that moment. That's amazing because the number one thing, there's so many takeaways, but the number one takeaway for me is that you were driven by your desire to serve, to be a public servant, to actually protect the American people. That was what brought you to the profession. It, it wasn't a political calculation for you. This was this was personal for you because of what you had experienced and and went through after 9-11. And so for you, for you versus Donald Trump, it's the opposite, right? So like you see someone like you who is a public servant, who is driven by the common good of the American people, watching someone who was not. We don't know all of the motivations for why he ran for president or wants to be president again. There's lots of them, none of which have to do with actually helping or serving the American people or obviously protecting our welfare or keeping us safe. So it's absolutely fascinating to me to hear your perspective for why you were staying, why you were there, why you thought you needed to be there. And the grown-ups in the room for what you increasingly were becoming aware was an, an unhinged, petulant, like national security empowering toddler. And uh, the fact that it's the John McCain flag raising that really kind of got you out of your bed in your boxers in Australia really speaks to me because, and I don't think that I'm alone in that as a liberal, I also believe that we should honor the troops. I also believe that John McCain was a hero. I do understand that politically we didn't always align, but I do think that at the end of the day, like you, John McCain was doing what he was doing in service of the American people. I, I will always believe that. And I remember at the time being absolutely outraged about that flag issue because it it leaked. Was it? Was, did you write about it in the anonymous letter, or did it leak elsewhere? Because I remember hearing about it. I, I later had a conversation on the record with a couple of news publications to tell them that story, and and then you know Trump vehemently denied it, and right. and I went out there publicly, and I think I, I dropped some of the receipts from you know having had that phone call. The whole exercise, I said, no, I'm not going to let you get away with this. Don't you pretend for a minute that you wanted to honor John McCain? You deliberately had your staff call to order us to dishonor the man, and you know people can judge me for not having come forward at an earlier red line but in that moment it was very personal a very bad man was jumping on the grave of a man that i deeply admired and that's just the type of thing that makes you feel sick to your stomach uh and 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 yeah that's that's where it that's where it really broke for me and it's funny because it's not funny really it's very sad but even president biden spoke recently about Donald Trump's decision to, well, I don't even want to call them decisions as if they're like thought through things. His demand that they cover the John McCain ship when it was, uh, I believe, yeah. wherever it was, um, and during those exercises, was it by Taiwan? I can't remember where it was, uh, South Korea, maybe? It was in Southeast Asia and he wanted, yeah. as he was visiting, he wanted the name, he wanted the ship out of sight. He didn't, yeah. he didn't want it, you know, and, covered. And, and, the Obviously. thing about John McCain, it started so early with with Trump and McCain, but it but it's it's not just that McCain went at Trump. It's that they the McCain understood who Trump was. And Trump fundamentally couldn't understand why someone like McCain would be remarkable for just being captured. That was how he saw it, because he has such disdain for the military. And I and I, and I love having this conversation because I've talked to uh, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling about it. I talked to George Conway about it on the narcissistic side of this equation, but like 
John McCain really sort of typified for Donald Trump how those people, others, you know, weak people follow rules like the military has, or they adhere to codes of moral conduct and ethics because he fundamentally believes that that makes you weak. And John McCain being respected for those things sort of just is like a smack in the face for someone like Donald Trump, who is everything that's not. And we've seen that so many times with him. I'm like, I'm going a little off topic, but we've seen that so many times with him when it comes to the military, to generals, to the way he talks about generals in the military, to the suckers and losers comment, which we all know, we didn't hear it. But we all know he said it. Um, well, and, and I can validate that. I mean, I the, the people who ended up sharing that suckers and losers story with the Atlantic, I mean, I won't, it's their job if they want to come forward in their own names and, and recount those anecdotes. Um, those were directly recounted to me at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the same people who spoke to the Atlantic I've spoken to. And, you know, not only did he make those comments, but I was actually surprised, Joe, in the writing of this book, Blowback, I went and talked to, I tried to go talk to senior officials who served in other departments and agencies with me when I was in the Trump administration or after I left to try to paint a very clear-eyed, non-hyperbolic view of what it would look like if he won re-election. And one of those departments I went and spoke to senior officials from was the Department of Veterans Affairs, the people that Trump himself interviewed and appointed to run the Departments of Veterans Affairs. I actually wasn't sure I was going to get any sort of interesting information or stories from that conversation because I, I didn't remember outside of some some strange personnel drama at the Department of Veterans Affairs, any major concerns. I was blown away. One of the quotes that's in the book that someone had mentioned to me, a very senior person running Department of Veterans Affairs said, Trump hated veterans. He viewed them as lazy malingerers. And his plan in the first term was to detonate the Department of Veterans Affairs because he found out that the VA has a budget of $250 billion a year. So technically, the, the biggest department in the federal government is the Defense Department. The second biggest in terms of budget is the Department of Veterans Affairs. The third was our department, Department of Homeland Security. $250 billion a year, and Trump wanted to use it as a piggy bank. He found out that they had the authority within the VA to reallocate programs and money, and he wanted to raid the VA and go spend the money on veterans on his own political priorities. And so, and, and you don't have to believe me, I mean, these people are quoted by name in the book, is two of his top people at the Department of Veterans Affairs said that Trump's plan was to detonate the VA so he could go use that money elsewhere. And the only reason he didn't do it in the first term is that those VA leaders persuaded him, not that veterans would die by the thousands, which they tried to persuade him, not that they would kick you know, people who'd served this country out onto the streets, but that if the president did it, it would hurt his reelection. And Trump was persuaded to wait until a second term to, quote, detonate the VA. If he wins reelection, that's one of the first targets on his list, is go detonate the Department of Veterans Affairs, use that $250 billion 
to go do other things that are political priorities because he thinks military veterans are lazy and he thinks that they are, you know, suckling on the teat of the welfare system. This is a man who had been United States commander in chief and two of his former deputy secretaries of the Department of Veterans Affairs effectively shared that with me in the writing of this book. That blew my mind. His disdain for people who've served in uniform is something that people don't want to believe because it sounds so outlandish, but it's true. He mm -hmm. hates veterans. And it's a very deeply personal thing for him because he himself did everything possible to avoid the draft so he didn't have to go to Vietnam. So he views veterans through a very cynical lens. And it's why he wanted to take mentors of mine like John Kelly or Jim Mattis and make them subservient to him. He loved the idea that generals would become his servants because he so loathes veterans because there's that insecurity. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, so much to talk about there because the insecurity thing is huge. Um, and, and there's a lot of conversations out there about why and why it's so much connected to this military idea and this uh, making generals subservient to you. And there is, you know, the fact that his father sent him away at a young age to a very strict military school, which, you know, he says in retrospect, gave him some guidelines or some bullshit. But we all know, and knowing him, because that is his way, that is his character, that that was probably such an affront to his person, that it has forever, he's carried that with him. And it's a lot of layers there for why. But honestly, just hearing you say that he thought the veterans were lazy, hearing those words out loud makes me want to cry and throw up and throw something at the window at all at the same time, because it's, insane, but also because of this idea that we need to have these conversations more, by the way, and louder because th there's this idea that is so false that he is really the, that they're, that they're, they support the troops and that Trump is, you know, for the military and that he's a patriot and like Ma and Pa Maga in Shoot Your Dinner, Arkansas need to hear this shit. Like they need to, I don't know that they'll really, really hear it. They'll say it's fake news, et cetera, but it, it, we still have to keep saying it because they keep trying to co-opt the idea that they support the troops when they vote against, you know, the PACT Act and shit. And they've got a guy that they want to put back at the helm who mishandled our classified national security information, to say the least, but also who said things like that. And and I'm going to get to this because it's really important. You said in a, in a second Trump term, he will do it. Because, well, he's not really worried about a third Trump election or fourth because he doesn't plan on having a democracy in place that will require an election. So he doesn't need to worry about political calculations then. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But it does bring me to, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit because in your book you talk about, well, two things. So the reason the book is called Blowback is a national security, in the national security world you come from, it's a term used to describe the unintended consequences of our actions, our failings to see what's around the corner if we make the wrong choice. And obviously, we're already on that subject because let's talk about what could be on the horizon if we somehow, God forbid, and the hairs literally on my arm standing up at the, this moment. If we're literally looking at- Dude, that was really weird as just as you said that. Yeah. I, was, I was getting chills. Maybe it's because it's chilly in this room I'm in. But, yeah. My yeah, it's definitely a combination of the, my air conditioner and just the kind of grim reality that that would represent. But you don't just talk about if it's Trump, God forbid, if it's any MAGA president. What, what you wrote about spy powers for revenge, hyper-politicized intelligence community, weaponization of the Justice Department, like for real, not Hunter Biden's fucking dick pics. Pardon me, sorry, YouTube. Um, deploying the military at home, an idea already floated when they tried to plot a coup and seize the voting machines with the military. So how could he or someone like him exploit the White House in a future term? Well, I, I'm glad you pointed to the terminology, Joe, because I was very deliberate in choosing that word blowback, because what we're talking about here is are the consequences, the unintended consequences of making that civic mistake again, of either putting Donald Trump or a savvier successor to the MAGA movement back into the White House. And it's the whole reason why I wanted to go write this book is to paint that picture in the most clear-eyed way possible. And, and let me be clear again, um, frankly, this was a pride swallowing siege to go write this book because I am personally so fed up with politics. I don't want to be doing this. I mean, I'm delighted to be here with you, Joe. I don't want to be talking about this. I don't want this to be my career. I'm, you know, I, I, I've, I've been sidelined into having to talk about politics now for the past couple of years because this man poses such a danger to our democracy. I would like it to go away and go back to things that I love working on national security, working on technology policy. Um, but I was persuaded to write this to try to paint that portrait. I was worried no one's painted a, a comprehensive picture yet of what will happen if the MAGA movement retakes the White House. But I'm also aware of this, is people don't want to hear me bloviating about it anymore. Yes, I'd been in the administration. I'd seen things that alarmed me. But by no means am I qualified to give you the full picture of what a second term looked like. I only worked in the Department of Homeland Security under Donald Trump, and I can tell you how bad it would be if he ran DHS again. So I went out and interviewed close to 100 people who had worked in the Trump administration, who had been senior uh, Republican members of Congress to paint that picture. And the notes that you just pointed to, some of the most alarming things were in other parts of the intelligence community. What other people who'd served under Trump projected he or another MAGA leader would do uh, really caused the hair on my arms to stand up. So let me point to one of them. You, you know, you mentioned spy powers for revenge. This was something I found to be deeply alarming is I talked to a number of top intelligence officials, people Donald Trump had appointed himself to run his intelligence community. And they said in a second term, his desire will be to actively go use the wiretapping powers of the intelligence community against political rivals. Now, this is the type of thing that if you'd said it to me seven years ago, I would have said, okay, that's kooky. 
that's conspiracy theorist stuff. But it's not a bunch of liberals saying this is going to happen. This is Donald Trump's own people saying this is what he wants to do in a second term. So one of them, for instance, Fiona Hill, who served as Trump's top advisor on Russia. You know, Fiona Hill's comment to me was in a second term, Donald Trump will implement a hyper polarized and partisan intelligence community. He's going to go install campaign operatives and partisan people to run agencies like the CIA and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And her comment was, it will lead the United States into wars because he wants to manipulate intelligence to project his own worldview. And that leads to a country that's operating on a very warped set of information if he ends up doing that. So her comment was it would lead the United States into war. But the one that was even more shocking to me is another, another one of Fiona Hill's colleagues that worked on the National Security Council in the Trump White House said he would go pull FISAs against political adversaries. What are FISAs? Well, for those who don't know, for listeners who don't know, that's the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that gives the president the authority to wiretap civilians on U.S. soil. So here we are. We've got one of Donald Trump's own appointees on the National Security Council saying, yeah, if he wins a second term, he'll want to go pull those FISAs illegally to listen to his political opponents. Again, don't believe me. Believe these people. Another example of this was my former boss, John Kelly. When he left the Department of Homeland Security and went over to the White House as, as chief of staff, John Kelly had said at one point Donald Trump asked him to wiretap the White House staff, because he was so worried about what his own staffers were saying about him to the media and to other people that he wanted to use those spy powers to wiretap his own staff. I mean, John Kelly just recently confirmed that to NBC News. I mean, again, we're not talking about a rogue congressman. We're talking about the president of the United States wanting to illegally use wiretapping powers against civilians without court approval. You think Nixon was bad? This is Nixon on steroids. This is the Nixon Chernobyl. It makes <laughs> it makes Nixon look like, you know, Barney, it, you know, look like it's just a very, very calm, playful, delightful guy. Uh, and these are the types of things we would have to worry about if he retakes the White House. And it's not a remote possibility. I mean, as you and I speak, Joe, the betting markets say Donald Trump's got roughly a 30% chance of being the next president of the United States, which let me remind listeners is three times the odds he had on the eve of 2016 when the betting market said he had a 9% chance of being president. Right now, the odds makers say he's got three times the chance of being the next president as he did before he won the election previously. It's absolutely um, gut-wrenching and astonishing to realize that. But what's even scarier to realize is that even... Even people I used to be able to faithfully have these conversations with, people I knew were like, hair on fire, this is really scary, this is, again, imperiling for this democracy, are kind of fatigued all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden, it's obvious that's not all of a sudden, but they're fatigued by so much of this stuff now, and yep. they don't even want to talk about it, which is, yeah. based on what you just outlined, which, by the way, the hypocrisy is not lost on me or anyone else probably who will be listening to this, that the very things he accused Obama of doing to him, <laughs> and or I think it's what he said, he, he wiretapped him, right, is something that he has already asked about doing and would actually do if, God forbid, hair on my arm standing up, uh, he were to get back into the White House. But Well, you mentioned, Joe, also the yeah. military piece 
if he gets back into the White House along the same vein, um, you know, two things that I talked about in this book. One is an anecdote about how, you know, uh, about the Insurrection Act is, you know, we all talk about January 6th. And did Donald Trump want to invoke the Insurrection Act to send the military out to, uh, you know, essentially prevent the transfer of power? This was something in the president's mind years before that. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is in 2019, Donald Trump called us over to the White House and wanted to announce that he was invoking the Insurrection Act in his State of the Union address. And we had to spend a day talking him and his lawyers off the ledge to make sure that he didn't do it. But he wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act. He wanted to send U.S. troops to the border to seal the country. And we didn't think there was any legal basis for it. We persuaded them not to. But I say that because... The idea of potentially using that power was in his mind years before January 6th, because and, and Donald Trump called this his magical authorities. He had been yeah. told early in his presidency that the Insurrection Act essentially would allow him to, to declare martial law. And so from then on, he was desperate to use that authority. In a second term, he would have no hesitation about invoking the Insurrection Act. Uh, and that was one of the other things the Defense Department people told me in this book that was shocking is Trump also wanted to create his own private military, his own mercenary group, like the Wagner group that mm. Vladimir Putin had. He wanted to create his own group of mercenaries that responded to his orders that he could deploy on U.S. streets or abroad that would respond to his command. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. And and people would be right to say, Miles, you're making this up if this was in my own main, name. But yeah. I cite the people in the book who worked for Donald Trump who said these are the things he wanted to do. And 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 it's it's amazing to me because hearing what you just outlined and what's in the book, um, it's as if history is completely lost on people who don't want to pay attention to this right now because you know the rise of Hitler, I, as a kid learning about Hitler, I remember asking, how did this happen? How did the good people, the reasonable people, the rational people allow this to happen, allow this person to come into power? And I never expected that at 49 years of age, well, from my yeah, mid forties to now, that I'd be watching it because we just talked about this. There's, there's this sort of um, apathetic view of like, oh, it's just more Trump stuff and the documents. It's like, but this book, your book is so incredibly important because we can't become apathetic to this stuff. We, You're painting a picture and you're sounding an alarm and you, you're not doing it based on some, you know, fascinating or fascinations of your own imagination. This is stuff you've talked to people about, like the, the groundwork's already there. He, it's not a mystery. He's already said to lots of people, the things that he would do, not least of which, like, <clears throat> is if he got back, we now know he, uh, magical powers, he thinks that all of our national security defense information is just sort of like his. And if he wants to show it to some, you know, big boobied Saudi spy, so he's gonna show her. And if it kills a couple of our assets in other countries, like, so be it, they're his. And this magical power stuff, it's not child's play. We're talking about dismantling democracy, which you say again in, in the book. The, the the this is a warning to save democracy from the next Trump, and and it can't be overstated. My question, I guess, really is, and I heard Nicole Wallace ask this the other day. It's like, how do what what is it going to be? Is there going to be a watershed moment? How do we reach 
people. The people who don't think what he's doing is a big deal, the people who don't think any of this is the big deal, the people who think this is just a bunch of liberals who have their hair on fire again. How do we reach them? How do they hear uh, this? Well, I'm going to say something that's going to be deeply ironic coming from me, Joe. And, and that is when I try to zoom out and assess what the biggest cause of all of this is, and the one thing I think that could prevent us from watching democracy's guardrails stripped. I'll, I'll tell you what that is in a second, but actually one quick non sequitur to your point, which was there was another person I spoke to as I was working on this book, uh, Sue Gordon, who had been the number two at the office of, of the director of national intelligence, uh, one of Trump's top spy leaders in the administration. And I asked Sue, what she assessed was the likelihood of American democracy surviving this century if we let people like Donald Trump come into the uh, White House. And she said very much in the speak of a lifetime intelligence officer, which she is, she says, I assess with low confidence that the United States reaches its 300th birthday in any recognizable form. So that's the year 2076 when America will turn 300. Uh, she assesses with low confidence that America reaches that point with its democracy in recognizable form because of these authoritarian trends we are seeing within my former party, the Republican Party. So why is it happening? How do we stop it? The answer to your question, again, this is going to seem sound deeply hypocritical coming from me, but I think the biggest threat to our democracy is anonymity. Now, why do I say that? I think the collective fact that especially Republicans are remaining anonymous about this threat is the really big danger. Now, in 2020, I personally believe, and it sounds self-serving, but I believe that the people who came forward from the GOP and from the Trump administration really were crucial in helping to defeat Trump. And not just me, the colleagues of mine like uh, Elizabeth Newman and Olivia Troy and John Bolton and these other people coming out against Trump gave air cover to Republican voters around the country to hold their noses and vote for a Democrat for the first time in their lives. And in fact, if you if you boil it down, really, Joe Biden won the presidency because 40 or 50,000 well-placed votes for Biden in three key swing states put him over the top. A lot of those were moderate Republicans who'd never voted for a Democrat in their lives. But you know what? They had other Republicans on TV saying, hey, I was in the Trump administration. He's dangerous. Vote for Biden this time. Then you can go back to voting for the Republican Party. My worry is so many prominent Republicans have continued to stand by Trump and not just stand by him, normalize him and take his movement to the next level, like House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, all of his top lieutenants, and even the people running against Trump. I mean, his own opponents have been scared, except Chris Christie and a few others, they've been scared to criticize him and continue to praise the former president. Their collective anonymity, and I say anonymity because in private, these same people, like Kevin McCarthy, will tell you Trump's a piece of shit, he's a disaster for the party, he's a disaster for the country, and then they'll go out and support him. So they're still wearing a mask. They're still refusing to say publicly what they say to people like us privately. And that anonymity is going to put our country 
in danger. And make no mistake, right now, we are foaming at the mouth, zombie walking towards a cliff that will destroy our democracy because of these people who do not have the courage to come out and speak up. And the reason that they're not coming out and speaking up, Joe, is because they're afraid. And I put this question to Adam Kinzinger, and I'll try to paraphrase it, but this is what Adam said, and, and I quote this in the book, is I asked Adam, I was like, Adam, why are these former colleagues of yours not coming out and just finally putting this guy to bed and getting him out of the picture? And I said, is it the death threats? Because my family, Adam's family, other Republicans, Liz Cheney, the people who've gone out against Trump, we've been chased and harassed. I mean, I spent election night 2020 in a safe house in Northern Virginia under armed guard because of the death threats from people in the MAGA movement. So I get it. Republicans don't want to speak up because they're scared. And Adam said, it's worse than that. And I said, well, what is it? What could be worse than your family being threatened? He said, they are more scared of being kicked out of the tribe than they are of death. They're more scared of being kicked out of their tribe than they are of death. And you know what, Joe, it reminded me of a famous Jerry Seinfeld joke is Jerry Seinfeld, like 20 or 30 years ago, had this stand up joke where he'd go up there and say, you know, recent surveys show Americans are, are you know, the number one thing they're most afraid of is public speaking. And surveys show the number two thing they're most afraid of is death. So they would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy <laughs> at a funeral. And that's kind of how Republicans are right now. They would mm -hmm. rather be in the coffin and dead than getting kicked out of the tribe and publicly having to speak out. That to me is terrifying. And that collective anonymity is what's putting our democracy at risk. And take it from me. I mean, <laughs> take it from me. I, my big regret was remaining anonymous for too long because what I discovered once I finally unmasked myself, Joe, is that it helped other people come forward because they said, oh, you don't have to hide to tell the truth. You can put your name on it. And I wish I'd done that a year or two sooner because I realized taking the mask off helped other people come forward. And that's what I wish other Republicans would do right now is unmask themselves, tell the truth about this man, and let's move on. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's interesting because beyond them is beyond them thinking it's some act of <laughs> bravery to speak the truth and while advocating for the protection of their democracy, they're wrong. So like politically, their instincts on this are wrong. I think within their own tribe, they're right. But then that doesn't get you beyond 
the doorstep of your own tribe. We've seen that now play out in the 2020 election, which Donald Trump did not, in fact, win. Joe Biden is not a Gitmo. Um, but we also saw it to a lesser degree, but we still saw surprising results in the 2022 midterms because beyond the tribe, I don't believe that their calculations are correct because like to your, your point about the moderate Republicans, I have family members, one of whom also worked in the Department of Homeland Security many, many years ago, who never voted for a Democrat in her life. And she voted for Joe Biden. She'll kill me right now. Um, but <laughs> but again, we'll keep her unnamed for the right, conversation. But, right. Well, we'll not say her name. But but I, I think that the, what they're doing is cowardice at the expense of the thing they think they're being cowards to protect, which is their power. But ultimately, I don't think the political calculation, not that I'm going to tip them off to this, but I just don't think it's wise. Um, but if they're able to cheat and steal enough, it's not going to matter whether or not they were brave or cowardly. But Joe Biden said recently, and it really upset me, I love our president, I do. And I still think that he's learning because he still, he came into the office, I believe, playing by the old rules that he knew as a Senator, even as a VP of what that Republican party looked like. And now they're really just a rabid, like animal in the corner, just eating red meat all day long. And I don't think he expected them to be as bad as they are, but he said four different Republicans had come to him at four at one time, and then two came together, two came separately, I forget, six total. Republicans had come to him over the course of his presidency privately to tell him that they agreed with everything he was saying, that they disagreed with what their party was doing, but that it would be political suicide for them to be public about that. And I just want to smack them across their stupid faces because why are you there? If yes. you're not going to stand up for what you actually believe because you think it's safer to say the thing you don't believe, what are you doing in government? You know, there's serve, right? I, I, I just couldn't agree more. And the cowardness, the cowardice is, it's pretty mind numbing. And it's, you know, it's putting the entire country in pretty grave danger. I, you know, I, I try and blow back to go essentially guardrail by guardrail. You know, what are each of the most foundational guardrails of our democracy within the executive branch, branch within the judiciary, within the legislature? And how are those potentially at risk if we put another hyper-populist uh, from the MAGA movement in the White House and, you know, the takeaway is very obviously that those guardrails, which are already corroded, uh, will be destroyed if that happens. And, it, you know, as someone who really, really loves this country, um, it is, I think it would be so humiliating to the founders, but not just the founders, like the men and women who've given their lives on the battlefield for this country, that we would zombie walk into self-destruction by letting those guardrails be destroyed by someone who wants to do it deliberately. I mean, here's the thing is, you know, I, in the course of writing this book, I, you know, I wrote a lot about how in the second term, Trump's priority or a Trump 2.0 would prioritize political revenge. And in writing that, that sounded I'm going to, again, use the word hyperbole. It sounded really hyperbolic. It sounded exaggerated that he'd come into office wanting to focus on revenge. 
And then before this book has been, you know, was even published, Donald Trump went out there at a major speech and said, I am your retribution. And it has become the watchword of his campaign. So don't even listen to me. Listen to the man himself. His priority as president of the United States again will be to weaponize the federal government to exact revenge against his political opponents. And one of the more sickening aspects of that I saw when I was serving in government was on multiple occasions, Trump wanted us to use emergency aid at the Department of Homeland Security to punish his enemies. And I remember a couple of specific incidents like this. One was the hurricanes that struck the US Virgin Islands in Puerto Rico. And another was the wildfires in California. And Trump wanted us to deliberately withhold the aid because as he told us, they don't support me there. They don't support me in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands and the Democrats don't support me in California. Let me be absolutely fucking clear. We are talking about mothers and fathers and their children whose houses were burning down or leveled by hurricanes and Trump wanted to keep the cash, the emergency aid that we would give them to survive as punishment because they were Democrats who didn't support him. I don't care what your political persuasion is, that is fucked up beyond belief. And that was the president of the United States. And now he's made clear in office, he wants to do that again. He wants to take the powers of the office and exact retribution and revenge against his political opponents. We cannot let this happen. And if we do, it's the deepest and most disgusting disservice we can do to those men and women who are six feet under with tombstones above their graves who gave their lives to protect this country. How dare we vote for a person who would go dishonor their sacrifice by doing that to this, this country? Amen to all of that. I, 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 I really almost thought I was going to cry when you were describing that a desire to harm people in states that didn't support him that were struggling and and it like i mean we knew it at the time and, and you you wouldn't really didn't want to believe it even though it made perfect sense but for me personally i, I where i live is very red and i was driving through we were in new york state i took my kids to cooperstown my son played that little league baseball game cooperstown we were driving through yeah. parts of new york state where Every other sign was, don't blame me, I voted for the other guy, Trump 2024, Trump 2020. There was a house, this one's inexplicable to me, that had yeah. the Confederate flag all over it and the preamble to the Constitution painted on the side of the house. Um, so secessionist flag and the Constitution, I don't even understand any of it, but I, my kids got really mad at me. You call me a terrible mom, it's fine. But I got upset and I said, you're in New York State. Your state voted for Joe Biden. Donald Trump would have kept COVID relief money from your whole state. There was a plan that he and Jared had discussed was withholding COVID relief money from blue states. Hey, New York Trumpers, that's you. Like you're supporting flying the flag for someone who would let your kids die from a, a virus instead of helping them because parts of your state voted for the other guy or didn't vote for him. And like that mentality that they so often vote against their own self-interests specifically with Donald Trump, but as the whole party really, that, that wants to take away their social services and, you know, 
stop paying for veterans health care, et cetera. The idea that they keep voting against their own self-interest is just, I want to bang my head against the wall. But hearing you say those stories about California and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, it's again, not at all surprising. But again, it's an alarm for what we know will happen in 2024, God forbid. And God forbid, God forbid, we see another cataclysmic event like a pandemic and he's at the helm or someone of his ilk is at the helm. We know what we're looking at. This isn't, you're, again, you're not just like drawing on a piece of paper and imagining the worst possible scenarios. The, the blueprints are there. The blueprints are there. And Joe, I would say it goes so much far beyond Trump himself. I mean, my my real worry as a lifelong Republican until recently is that most of the other people who would take his place in the White House from the GOP are going to govern in a similar way because the MAGA movement's really overtaken the party. It's the core of the base. So whether they agree with it or not, there's a political necessity in their minds to cater to the base, give them what they want. And they've gone beyond Trump. So, you know, I'll give you one example of that. Trumpism as a movement has spiraled well beyond his control. And even things he wanted to do in the first term that he decided were too extreme and he stopped short of, now his acolytes are taking further. And one example of that is the busing and dumping of migrants. I remember, and I've, I've got the receipts, February 2019, Donald Trump's office calls me, you know, at the White House. The president wants to order us to deliberately, us at the Department of Homeland Security, to bus and dump migrants from the border into blue states and blue cities as punishment. His specific words were, I want the murderers, the rapists, and the criminals pulled out of the flows and sent into those cities to wreak havoc because he wanted to score political points and he wanted to punish them for doing that. Now, we told Donald Trump, his chief of staff, senior, you know, senior advisor for immigration, Stephen Miller, we told all of them that would be illegal. Our lawyers said this would be illegal to do this crazy thing. And Trump backed down. Well, guess what? After Trump leaves office, his acolytes like Ron DeSantis in Florida and Greg Abbott in Texas decide, well, we don't care if the lawyers say that's not something you can do. We'll do it. And what have they done? Bust and dumped migrants into Democratic sanctuary cities and states to punish them and to turn those innocent men and women and children into political pawns. So even things Donald Trump was talked out of doing, his followers have now taken a step further. That is evidence to me that Trump himself isn't the only concern. Trump could fall out of the picture today. And that's why I say it's a warning to save democracy from the next Trump because they're taking his movement further. One other example of that would be the FBI. While I was in the administration those first two years, Trump wanted to actively gut the FBI. We saw it with him firing Comey. We saw his attacks on Andy McCabe, who I talked to for this book and others. He was ultimately persuaded that he could not gut the entire FBI because he would get impeached. Well, now the idea of cleaning house and cleansing the FBI is not a fringe talking point anymore. It's a talking point of top Republicans in the House. It's a talking point of the leading candidates in the GOP presidential field with Donald Trump. So again, another thing he was stopped short of doing as president, they want to take further. So make no mistake, even if Donald Trump loses, we are at grave risk of a Trump 2.0 ascending to the White House. And that doesn't even take into account their attacks on personal freedoms like reproductive rights, like trans rights, like 
LBGTQ rights, like LGBTQ rights. They're they're not, we're not even talking about that. That's a whole nother conversation because so many of them have jumped the shark on that compared to where Trump ever was. And he's trying to play catch up with Ron DeSantis on some of that really, really hateful vitriolic shit. And that's, but that would be another place where whoever it is, and it, that term would look a lot like that too. Well, Joe, one of the grossest quotes from someone in the book, this was a, a Trump political operative who I asked, I said, what will the domestic policy agenda look like in a second term? And specifically, what would Trump 2.0's legislative agenda be? What are they going to try to push on Capitol Hill? And the quote was guns, gays, and girls. And I said, hold on, be a little bit more specific. What do you mean by guns, gays, and girls? Guns that they will try to strip any gun protection laws left in the United States. So there's an unfettered Second Amendment, any gun safety laws they want to strip. Gays, they want to roll back LGBTQ rights, specifically the Supreme Court's protection of gay marriage. And I said, girls, what do you mean by girls being the, the priority? And they said, oh, well, abortion, as they want to federally make abortion illegal. I think we're now at 11 states that have mm -hmm. effectively outlawed abortion since the Supreme Court decision. Uh, they want to make it 100% of states by passing federal law. This is not the Republican Party that I became a part of uh, you know, when I was a young man. I thought the GOP was moving beyond the culture wars, and we were going to focus on things like government's role in society and a balanced budget. And instead, whoever the next MAGA Republican president is going to be, the priority will be the culture wars. And again, in this operative's words, it will be going after, you know, restrictions about guns, gays uh, and girls. To me, that says it all and is a really disgusting priority for anyone who would be considered leader of the free world. Right. And to anyone out there who thinks that that election or those elections wouldn't have consequences on them personally because those those issues don't impact them personally, um, as we've seen with the gun issue, give it a little while. Um, because we've talked to, I talked to Brett Cross, who is um, the parent of one of the victims of Uvalde. And one of the things we talked about was just, you know, he used to say that that doesn't impact me. I, my family's okay. And then it, and then it did. So like these issues, you know, you can think, oh, that doesn't impact me directly. Um, but it very well might and most likely will. Um, so changing gears with a strange pivot point, I just wanted to talk. I do really quickly because it's glorious tea and disgusting all at the same time. Um, one of the first kind of quotes from your book that got a lot of traction and a lot of interest and it all isn't all surprising either is that you write about, and I don't want to talk about it. I really don't want to talk about it. We have <laughs> no, no. to talk about it. Um, we have to talk about Ivanka. So you you write in your book, Lowback, that um, Donald Trump talked about his daughter's breasts and what it might be like to have sex with her, his daughter. Um, and then John Kelly, his chief of staff, actually had to remind him that she was, in fact, his daughter. And oh, I don't even like, oh, my God. And this is a thing that people were aware of in the in the White House. I I actually hesitated, Joe, whether to even put that in the book because it's so sensational. Um, 
you know, that it just runs the risk of, of not being taken seriously. Um, but in my mind, I've got to think that somewhere people who still support this man will at least draw the line at incest. And, you know, in fairness, I, I, I never personally directly witnessed Trump say he wanted to have sex with his daughter. This was secondhand. And one of the people that I cite was his own chief of staff who had conveyed that to me and who was so disgusted by it in recounting the story to me that his comment was, Trump is a very, very evil man. Anyone who would sexualize their daughter that way, of course, you would consider at best to be a very evil and disturbed person. And I'll confess my ignorance to this, Joe. I hadn't realized how much more documentation there was out there about this, because after people started to pick up on that portion from the book, um, I saw all the TV clips and radio clips in the past where Trump has said those things. And maybe I'm just naive and I'd missed that in the course of the past few years. But then when I saw the supercut of that, of him on TV, you know, talking about how he would date her if he wasn't his daughter and calling her a fine piece of ass. And I mean, this is truly disgusting stuff. So again, I don't care what your politics are. And if you want the most red meat Republican in office, but you probably don't want a father who talks about having sex with his daughter running your country, because that says a lot about that person's value set and how they will operate uh, in a position of influence. And that means someone operating without any values whatsoever or any basic sense of you know norms of human behavior. So yeah, it was pretty disgusting to me. And like I said, I hesitated about whether to even talk about that in there because it's such a revolting concept, but people need to know the character of this man if they still don't. Uh, and, and I think probably nothing speaks to the true depths of his lack of character than comments like that. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the truth. And, and it's important that we have these conversations. It's disgusting and revolting as they are. First of all, again, it's not like uh, you're the first person who ever mentioned this. We have all seen the same kinds of comments. We've seen the same quotes. We saw the same, I would date her if she wasn't my daughter. What do you have in common? We have sex in common. Those kind of comments. I mean, they're off-putting as it is, but there's this idea out there where there's this fictional Trump, right? So he's the patriot who supports the troops and he's a devout uh, Christian and he's a, a family man. And those are all lies. Um, we know that there couldn't be more counter to the truth. And this one like, again, it's disgusting and off-putting and revolting and sad as it is. It is important as part of the sort of like tapestry of how fucked up he is. Again, sorry for the F word, but like this one. <laughs> sorry, YouTube. And, yeah, and sorry, listeners, YouTube. Really, this is an R-rated podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's we're streaming on my OnlyFans. Just kidding. Trolls. No OnlyFans. <laughs> so, but like, but like this one, like you don't have to be. You don't have to be the kind of person who pays attention to policy or platform or the history of the party or this idea of the guardrails. You don't need to know any of that shit. You got a guy who wants to stoop his daughter? Like, this is not someone you want having nuclear codes. Like, come on. This is just not, like, rocket science. You know what I mean? Well, and, and maybe, again... Also, even not Ivanka, Joe. I mean, the way he treated other women in the administration that I witnessed was, was really grotesque. Um, you know, at one point I was working very closely with Kirsten Nielsen when she was Secretary of Homeland Security. He regularly 
um, made inappropriate comments towards her about her appearance, you know, about other things. And he did it with others. I mean, there's a there's an anecdote I recount in the book about a time that we were in the Oval Office and Trump thought he saw uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders out in what's called the Outer Oval. It's a little tiny office just outside of the Oval Office. And he was saying, Sarah, come in here. Sarah, come in here. Uh, and the aide poked her head in and it was his much, much younger personal assistant. And she said, you know, Mr. President, it's not Sarah, it's, you know, me. Uh, and he responds with something to the effect of, oh, man, I was going to say, Sarah, you've lost a hell of a lot of weight. Um, and, and this is the president saying this in front of a bunch of national security officials. I mean, how humiliating for him to make that kind of derisive comment about his press secretary's weight in front of everyone. But these were not infrequent occurrences. I mean, this is how the man uh, behaved. I mean, you know, I'll use Kellyanne Conway's words. You know, Kellyanne Conway called him a, a misogynistic bully. I was very disappointed to see Kellyanne publicly deny having said that. Um, I mean, give me a break, Kellyanne. Um, I, I just threw you a lifeline and gave you a little bit of credit for actually saying who this man was. Kellyanne said it. I wrote it down at the time. She said he's a misogynistic bully, and she can't even confess to that today. I mean, this is the level of warped devotion that his cult members have, is they won't even admit to having had the courage privately to criticize the man, uh, you know, which she had had done. So, you know, that's uh, you talk about a cult of personality. I used to think it was absurd that Trump compared himself to Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. He talked about this a lot in private, and he would tweet about how he was a bigger deal than Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan. And I, of course, thought that was an absurdity. I now, Joe, think he was right. I do. I think Republicans admire him more than Abraham Lincoln, who saved the country from being split in two, from Ronald Reagan, who won the Cold War. I think they love him more. And the polls show it because the cult-like devotion they have towards him is something they never had towards Reagan. Maybe Lincoln in their admiration for him saving the country. But the cult-like devotion towards Donald Trump is, in fact, greater than anything we've seen in the history of the Republican Party. And, and that's really alarming. And I had a lot of Republicans say that on the record in this book is to talk about how the cult aspect of them, of it really, really scared them. Um, you know, Scott Rogel, a former Republican congressman from Virginia, that was his quote. He said, you know, as it started to happen, and I'm working in the House of Representatives, it, I, he said, I don't use the word terrifying much, but it terrified me mm -hmm. how much my colleagues started to act like cult members. I mean, when you're talking about the party that right at the moment has control of one of the chambers of Congress and, the you know, potentially could put that person back in the White House, it is absolutely terrifying. I and mean, really, that is there's no better word for it. And we could go into why that cult-like devotion is what it is another time, because that was that would be a very deep dive conversation because there's lots of reasons. But it is truly terrifying. Um, I I I cannot believe that this is what we're looking at when we're talking about a former TV game show reality host who paints himself orange and looks at eclipses with the naked eye and talked about shooting people crossing the border in the legs and nuking a hurricane and drew on the freaking hurricane map. And we're talking about an, an idiot, but a madman too. And this is their messiah. And it's uh, very deeply concerning and terrifying, doesn't even um, come close to defining it. But uh, 
I don't know if they'll ever come back actually from that cliff. I don't know what the other side of Trump looks like if there's another side of Trump. Do you think there's another side or on the other side of Trump for the Republican Party? I, I, I do. I mean, that hope is, you know, it's a very, very slim, slim, uh, you know, sliver of hope there. But, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with a note of optimism, which is, you know, we bounced back from some really dark periods in American history before, and it's certainly possible. I think it's a generational challenge. I think it's going to take uh, more moral courage from leading Republicans to break with him. And you're seeing that in tiny degrees. You saw Kevin McCarthy several weeks ago creating a little bit of separation from he and Trump. Of course, he quickly ran to apologize to Trump after yeah. that. But little by little, if we can see uh, a uh, just a tad of moral courage from these people, we can come back from the brink. Um, but but we really are at that edge, I think, as a country. And a lot of the data shows it. The attitudes towards political violence in our country at the moment are off the charts. Chatter about civil war is at levels we've never seen it. And again, don't believe me, you know, if you think, think it's hyperbolic, uh, you know, you just go look at the data. I mean, one in four Americans uh, responded to an NPR survey with favorable views uh, of violence towards the government. That's unbelievable that a quarter of this country would say, yeah, maybe we should take up arms against the government. We're in a very dangerous moment, and it's because we've had bad political leaders that have fanned the flames of political intimidation like Donald Trump. Uh, and we've got to dial it back because, you know, genuinely, the future of our of our country depends on it. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Yeah, and that is one of the reasons I'm so grateful to you for your voice and for this book. Um, because that is what you're you're doing. You're standing up and you're advocating for the protection of this democracy for the generations that follow us, for our kids. Um, and it, we need more of you. We need to blast this stuff on the loudspeakers all the time so that people who might not think this stuff is as precipice-oriented as it is start to get it. Um, so your book is incredibly important in that regard, but it's it's more than just a red, you know, a, an alarm for what could potentially 
happen in the future, but it's also sort of like a guide to how we can avoid that. And some of the things we talked about sort of are, are implicit in that. But you you do talk about, you know, what Americans can do to, to, to make sure this doesn't happen, that we don't fall into the hands of authoritarian rule. Yeah, and I and I think that that actually is one of those things that every American has experienced now in their own lives. Our way out of this mess. I mean, we hear this all the time, right? We hear people, we hear politicians say, you know, it goes, you know, it's it's up to you and your vote, and at the household level, and we all kind of say, I don't know, that's bullshit. Like, how can I have any impact on the direction we're going? But I actually think it's very real, and and. Um, let me cite specifically what I'm talking about. Some people, you know, see this as, you know, what we would call cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And I call it in the book, a mass bystander phenomenon that now everyone's really afraid to tell the truth because mm-hmm. they're afraid of getting canceled. Whatever that truth is, telling their true opinions about something that happened in the news, telling the truth about Donald Trump, there is a collective fear of speaking out today that's infused all of our lives. We've all experienced it. Ooh, I shouldn't say the wrong thing on Twitter. I shouldn't say the wrong thing about Donald Trump that might piss off my neighbors, you know, or at a barbecue. That collective bystander effect is the reason we might waltz into another Trump administration. Because if people don't speak out, it becomes a lot easier for others to fade into the background and for this to happen. And that bystander phenomenon, I mean, you see it in the news. Whenever we see a story about someone getting beaten up or killed on a New York subway, Hmm. that story always involves 20, 30, 40 people who were sitting there in their seats watching it happen. Why do they watch it happen? Because the bystander phenomenon in psychology is such that people think, someone else will step forward. That's why they don't do anything, is they Mm -hmm. assume someone else in the crowd will step forward to stop the bully from beating up the innocent person. The problem is, if everyone thinks that, no one steps forward. So it requires one person, two people stepping forward, which then lowers the cost for other people to step forward and do the right thing. We are living in that as a society right now, as everyone's scared to say the right thing because they think someone else will do it first. And that really, the onus is on each of us. As much as it sounds like a kindergarten teacher exhortation, if you do the right thing, other people (laughs) do the right thing. But it is truer now than it has ever been. And we know from the polling that there is a silent majority that actually does oppose this autocratic trend in our politics that does want to move beyond Donald Trump. But they're scared to start. So the message, as pedestrian and insipid as it sounds to Americans, I think, is it really is up to you to start to be more vocal, to start to be honest about your opinions on this subject. Even if you're deep within the Republican tribe and it's scary, you'll be surprised. Maybe your neighbors who you think are mega MAGA actually aren't, and they're mm-hmm. waiting for the next person to come out and make it easier for them to speak the truth. And and that's what we really need to do as a society is lower the price of dissent. And we see that today. I mean, no one's got to have sympathy for me, but if I had come out against, you know, George W. Bush, and I worked in the Bush administration, I love George W. Bush, but if I had quit in a blaze of glory and said he's a bad president, all that would have happened to me is they would have said, cool, you're out of the Republican club. We don't like you anymore. But doing that to Donald Trump meant a steady stream of death threats, losing my home, losing my job, 
losing my relationship at the time, having my sister receive pictures of her house from stalkers and pictures of my nieces with death threats. This is sick shit. And this is only happening because we've allowed ourselves to be cowed and silenced by the by the political intimidation and violence. And my friend, Alex Vinman, who's quoted in this book, you know, Alex said it very simply. He said, intimidation works. And the only way to counter it is to just show that you won't be intimidated. And uh, and we, we're seeing that across the country with poll workers and local leaders. They're all on the receiving end of crowdsourced threats and vitriol. And the way to push back against it is to show that you're not cowed by it. And that's happening again in our communities. Um, and, and so that's my big message is people really need to be as unafraid as possible because the public service they will do by telling the truth is make it easier for other people to tell the truth. And I had to learn that the hard way. I had to learn that the hard way by being anonymous and thinking it was the smart way to fight Trump. And it wasn't the smart mm -hmm. way to, to unmask myself and attach my name to it. I'm sorry about everything that happened to you in the wake of you deciding to stand up for democracy. I understand that side of it as someone who's received death threats inexplicably. Like it's, it, it was crazy when someone called me and said, the day Paul Pelosi was hit with a hammer that I was going to get Paul Pelosi next. And they were on their way to my house and they said my address on the call. So Please. like, I'm sorry that happened to you. I, I mean, it's awful. It's awful. And it really does speak to what's taken hold of that, you know, that political party at the moment. Um, but I, 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 I keep hearing in my head something a friend of mine said, which was like, I didn't, I always took democracy for granted. I didn't understand that it wouldn't just always be there, that I'd always just wake up with the freedoms that I had. And then once I started to see things chipped away, like the Dobbs decision, et cetera, I was like, oh, she realized, no, I can't take this for granted. And that's the thing about democracy, as, as old as ours is, like, and it's not even that old, but it does, you're learning now. It requires work, it requires diligence. It does require bravery. It does require people to go first. So that the people can come up behind them and feel safe, and um, and 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 it's a daily practice. It really is, and that's just the way it's probably going to be in our in perpetuity. I mean, really, it's it's so fragile that it takes it does it does take all of us, <laughs> and it it really that's democracy. That's what democracy looks like. That was what we love. It's what's so special about this country that the the, the people really do have the power. And we can affect the changes we want to see by using our voices. And as long as we can continue to push back on the cheating and the stealing and the gerrymandering and all of the other stuff that they're doing to rig the elections against democracy, I do believe, like you said, the bulk of the country is actually in favor of protecting this little experiment of ours versus dismantling it and looking like, you know, Russia or North Korea. I really do believe that. So- I, I I yeah. could not have said it better. And um, I told you before we even hit record, Joe, and I'll tell your listeners, and I'm not blowing smoke. I really hope people stick with you throughout all of this and listen to you because you're just such a clear-eyed um, observer of what's happening to our country right now and just a really important mouthpiece for sharing with folks what we need to do 
to protect the American experiment because, you know, as Reagan said, it is always a generation away from extinction. And I'm not sure there's been a generation in at least a century that has so clearly faced the prospect of the extinction of the American experiment. So I am incredibly grateful to you for being one of those people that is, you know, standing athwart history and yelling, stop, we've got to, we've got to save this thing. So uh, really grateful for you, Joe. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you, I've, I've gushed, I think, a lot about you. I hope I have done a sufficient job because it's you've actually done the work. You've actually done the work. You've 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 sounded the alarm from within the burning building. And that sort of in the beginning has set the tone and everything you've done since then has been in an effort to protect this democracy again for, for our kids. That's really for me. That is the number one for my kids, for their kids, for your kids, for all future generations to inherit the country that we want to leave them instead of the one that we we don't. Um, but I wanted to pivot just one last time, <laughs> totally okay, yeah. separately. I I have been wrapping up my podcast episodes with five random questions, but because I talked to you for so long and I'm so sorry, I knew this was going to go long because I knew I had a billion trillion questions and you're just amazing and so articulate and again, clear eyed. Uh, so I'm going to ask you three totally random questions. <laughs> Rapid fire if you're ready. Speed round. I love the speed round. Speed round. Yes. Um, I've seen this up a long time uh, from a podcast I had many, many years ago where I, I played the a fuck Mary kill game and it was not nice. So I don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Cause I realized like, Oh my God, that's like, people don't like that. Like whatever. So now I don't do that. So rapid question. Number one, this one is very important. And I think national security might be on the line, depending on your answer. Does ketchup belong on eggs? Yes or no. Oh uh, yes. Oh yeah. I'm so sorry. I love it. I love it. I put ketchup on there. I put hot sauce on there, but especially hot sauce for me. If I can just really, if if my eggs hit my face like a fist punch, <laughs> ketchup and hot sauce, I'm a happy guy. Hot hot sauce is, yes. Hot sauce is definitely green like ding, ding, ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Ketchup is an abomination. Like ketchup, two places in the world for ketchup on the side of French fries and in cocktail sauce. That's it. But but I, I I don't know now. I mean, I would still recommend people go get your book, but like, mm, you know. This will help my detractors good. cement their view that I'm a real sick guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right, well, I I will let that ketchup answer slide. I still like you, so that's fine. But I will never eat eggs at your family's house. Just yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> my daughter does it too, and mac and cheese. And it's just like, oh, girl. Okay, what's your go-to movie snack? Uh, milk duds. Milk duds. And, and I will confess to having relatively recently eaten a box of milk duds that pulled a filling out of one of my teeth. And I, I still I still will do it again. See, that's what I was going to ask. You must have some seriously strong teeth because like, uh, girl, I'm not going down the, oh my God, I'm watching Spider-Man. This is a great movie. I just lost my tooth in a box of milk duds. <laughs> it literally came out while I was in a movie theater. I was like, there's something hard in this milk dud. Oh, it's <gasps> something. It's a filling. <laughs> so, yeah. My tooth. Yeah, I uh, definitely, I that is a, a Russian a game of uh, Russian roulette. I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to roll the dice on that one. So, but mine, I think is probably snow caps. Have you ever had those? those are good. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good pick, good. good pick. Underrated. Right? I feel like it's a sleeper. I really do. And my kids put it in their popcorn, but that's also not something I do. They're whatever. Okay, last question. What was your first job? Since we've talked a lot about the job we know you best for, what was your first job? 
First job is I worked at a restaurant in Laporte, Indiana called the Silver Palace, and it was a catering uh, event venue. And I thought I would get the distinction of being a server, but instead they thought I looked too young. I was an eighth grader, so they stuck me in the kitchen and I was the dishwasher. And I came home and my hands, if anyone's ever been a dishwasher at a restaurant, the water is hot. It mm -hmm. sculpts your hands. And I would come home with these bulbous red hands. And I complained to my dad. I was like, I I don't want to do this anymore. I'm burning my hands. And my dad said, you know, if you want to use your brain instead of your hands, you got to go find that job. So I went and found a, a job at a local radio station, which was much better. And they didn't burn my hands. Well, thank you, Silver Palace, for putting Miles in the <laughs> job. I worked at TGI Fridays in college, and it was one of the stations you had to work if you wanted that pin. So yeah, I yeah. have too, and I believe this fundamentally about restaurant work. I do believe it like changes people in ways that like no other industry really can. So thank you, Silver Palace, for for putting Miles. In the radio profession. And, uh, and, and Joe, if if Donald Trump or a copycat ends up winning the White House, I I would bet you and I are going to be working uh, at a TGI Friday. So let me just make this an, an official ask to the overlords at TGI Fridays. Please consider hiring Miles and Joe uh, if, if Trumpism returns to the White House. So we'd be delighted. We're excellent servers. We've got great background experience. So that may be where we're at, sister. I, if I'm not in the gulag, I do not think, and I'll take the top bunk, but I do not think TGI Fridays will be having me back since we didn't part on the best of terms since I may have served a friend who was underage in the smoking collection of the TGI Fridays in Boston. But whatever. Sorry, Fridays. But I would still love to come back if I'm not on the top bunk in the gulag. Um, well, okay. next time we do this, next time we do this, Joe, we'll have a uh, yeah, we'll have an after hours version of the pod where we tell the real stories from you know Kitchen Confidential, Anthony Bourdain style. What really happens in the service industry? <laughs> <laughs> the real world. What happens when people stop being polite and start getting <laughs> mild and Joe? The dark secrets of the fat, the fast casual world of restaurants and the dirty dish. Um, okay, well, on that note, oh, I wanted to ask you, okay, wait, I wanted to ask you the, the wait, okay. Oh, okay, here it is. Uh, where, other than the book, obviously people should go get the book. Where else should they be following you, finding you? What should they be looking for from you? Would love for folks to follow me on Instagram at Miles Taylor USA, on Twitter at Miles Taylor USA. And we also... I'm super excited about this. We just released, or we will be releasing shortly, a podcast with iHeartRadio uh, called The Whistleblowers. And I was really lucky to get roped into this um, by the team at Best Case Studios and Arc Media. Uh, it's a series about people who've blown the whistle inside of government and, and the experiences that they've had in the wake. And so, you know, these stories that we went and followed were genuinely gripping and emotional and really, really raw. And um, yeah, and so check out the whistleblowers, uh, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. It's, it was um, eye-opening uh, to me. And, and a lot of those conversations I had changed my mind. It's, you know, folks from, you know, Stephanie Grisham, who used to be an enemy of mine and, and now is, you know, now we're friends <laughs> to reality winner who, you know, leaked secrets and went to prison. It's a fascinating series. So would love for folks to listen to that. And even if you don't want to pick up blowback and read blowback, I really genuinely would ask folks, if there's someone in your life who's a 
Republican who's maybe on the fence about whether to support Trump again, um, give them this because it's not me bloviating. It's it's almost all Republicans cited in this book talking about what they think would happen. So, um, you know, pick it up for someone you think who needs to hear the message. Uh, I'd be grateful for that. Yeah, that's incredibly important. And I will be picking it up for some people in my life as well. So because I think they need to read it from their from their perspective where the people that they trust, you know, not from someone who's a bleeding heart liberal like me. <laughs> but thank you so much. This is great. I, I really appreciate how generous you were with your time. <laughs> I mean, I like, no, I took a lot of your time. So thank you. You are amazing. Uh, let's do this again. Thank you for how you're serving our country and um, appreciate all, all you listeners who are following Joe and sticking with Joe. She's she's a rock <laughs> star and a patient. Thank you so much, Miles. Good luck with the book. Thanks, friends. See you later. Thanks for joining me. And if you are listening to the Are You Effing Kidding Me podcast, make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like and subscribe below. Are You Effing Kidding Me is a production of the Political Voices Network. Please visit us at politicalvoicesnetwork.com. Mm-hmm.